Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. If you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 33. One of the, uh, one of the most charismatic orators, leaders of the 20th century, we all know his name, Martin Luther King Jr. led the civil rights movement to success. His work helped to bring an end, mostly, to racial segregation in the United States and to help his message better resonate with his followers King would frequently use the biblical story of the Exodus as the story of freedom. It brought a unity to the civil rights movement. It gave his followers confidence to continue fighting against racial injustice. The Exodus story helped them understand the prolonged struggles that they were to endure Israel's exodus helped the civil rights supporters to see beyond their own struggles and to identify with others in their plight. And as we look at this story tonight, we're going to look, uh, beginning actually at the climax of the story, and then we're going to work our way a little bit backwards. So before we get into that, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening the opportunity we have to come together to study your word together, to sing praises to your name, to glorify your son. Lord, we thank you that you filled us with your power. You filled us with your spirit. And Lord, as we read this passage together and as we study together this, this narrative, this great story of how you have saved and redeemed your people, may it resonate with us. May, it, may we identify ourselves in the story just as those civil rights supporters did those years ago. Father, open our eyes that we may see and that you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just jump in beginning in verse 33 and we'll read through verse 36 for now. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up and the clothing on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So we see some pleading and we see some plundering. So as we pick up the story, as I said, we're kind of coming at the end. They're, they're pleading for the people of Israel. The Egyptians are pleading, leave, go away, and do so with haste, do so quickly. 
So let's take a moment to review so we know why they want them to leave so bad. Uh, last week, Kevin walked us through some of the prophecies that, that Jacob had, who had been renamed Israel, as we've already studied. Uh, Israel gave to his sons these prophecies before his death. And as we remember, Israel had taken his family to Egypt to escape from this great famine in the land. And through Joseph and the things that he suffered, the Lord had in his providence put Israel's son Joseph in Egypt in power with a plan to provide not only for the people of Egypt, but for the people of the land surrounding as well, including Israel and his sons. Well, Jacob had died in Egypt. And then they had this great funeral procession that went back to, the, to Canaan where he was buried. But then also his son Joseph died in Egypt. And we don't have this great story of them having this funeral procession out into Canaan. Rather, we have this promise that Joseph asks, When you go back home, Israel, promise to take my bones with you. And then Exodus opens with God building this great nation of Israel within the nation of Egypt, within the land of Egypt. He blessed Jacob's children with great growth. Exodus 1, verse 6 and 7, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. But then you have an ominous note. Exodus 1, 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what this new Pharaoh did see was an alien people in the land who were growing in number and in power. And so he decided, let's enslave them. Because that's great. When you see somebody growing in power and in number, that's what you want to do. Let's put them under our thumb. Yet even still, in their slavery, Israel Blossomed, And so the Egyptian leaders were so afraid of them that they told their, their midwives to kill all of the boys when they were born. And they lied and said, well, they're just, the women are too strong. They, they bear and we don't even get there in time because they've already borne the children on their own. Uh, so he's initially fr frustrated in his attempt. And so he makes this proclamation that all the sons of Israel be thrown into the Nile River. And then for several chapters, the, the scene shifts to this human character, Moses, a boy who was miraculously saved from this slaughter and instead was actually raised in Pharaoh's own household. What a great irony. Supposed to be killing them, instead he becomes as his son. Well, as a young man, Moses murdered one of the Egyptian taskmasters over the Israelites. And when that becomes known, he flees into the desert where he lives for 40 years in Midian. If you were here this morning, Chaplain Beltram referred to or alluded to Exodus 3 
And Moses meeting the Lord in the burning bush and say, saying, Who am I, as we just sang, who am I that the Lord would call me to do this great thing? But God had heard Israel's moaning and their groaning. And he had a plan to redeem them from the curse of slavery. And so he had chosen Moses, this Hebrew who had been miraculously saved and raised up in Pharaoh's household, who had then fled to go back and to issue a challenge to Pharaoh, or perhaps just a call to Pharaoh at this point, as God's messenger. So at God's behest, Moses goes back to Egypt and he addresses Pharaoh, but God warns him before he goes. If you want to turn over to Exodus chapter 7, we'll read five verses there. Exodus 7, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And so we read in the very next verse, Moses and Aaron obey the Lord. Pharaoh welcomes this, at this point, octogenarian to come into his court. But then he refuses to allow the people of Israel to go into the wilderness to worship Yahweh, this God that Pharaoh does not know. And the fact that Pharaoh did not know this God is somewhat significant. Because as the political and religious leader of the people, Pharaoh was supposed to know the whole pantheon of gods. He was supposed to know all of them. In fact, the ancient Egyptians believed that Pharaoh housed a portion of the soul of the god Horus. And so he had the kingly ka, is what it's called. So the pharaoh was seen as being a representative to the gods and an intercessor for the Egyptian people with the gods. But this god, Yahweh, he did not know. So how was he supposed to take his religious practices and his efforts to sustain and to placate this pantheon of gods to turn to a human advantage when he does not know this God. Yahweh is unknown to him, and therefore he considers Yahweh to be a non-entity. Not saying he doesn't believe he exists or says he's a false god or anything. He, he just doesn't matter. Never heard of him before. But God would prove himself, not only to Pharaoh, but to all Egypt. 
and also to Moses and to all the Israelites and to those in the nations surrounding Egypt. Now, you've likely heard of the plagues of Egypt. God first sent, when, when Moses and Aaron first go in, Aaron's staff turns into a serpent, and the magicians are able to replicate and have two snakes of their own. How they did that, I have no clue. But even in that, that one snake of Aaron's rod consumes the two, already foreshadowing what's about to happen, that God's going to defeat them. And then God turned the Nile River to blood. But the court magicians were, once again, somehow, I don't know, able to duplicate the results. The next one I think is interesting. God brought an infestation of frogs, and somehow, once again, I don't know how that happens, the magicians of Egypt were able to replicate God's miracle. But then when God brings an infestation of gnats, the magicians cannot duplicate it, and the court magicians recognize in 819, this is the finger of God. Yet, Pharaoh still would not listen. And so God sends swarms of flies, pestilence of the Egyptians' livestock, boils upon the people's skin and animals. Thunderstorms of hail, swarms of locusts, and darkness for three days. Sum that up pretty quickly, right? Yet still, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites leave from the land. And throughout the plague's narrative, these, these move fairly quickly. God did this. Pharaoh said, I will let the people go. If you relent, God relents. And Pharaoh says, I will not let them go. And so they move on to the next one. And it's just one after the other, after the other, after the other. But then, between the darkness, when God brings back the light, there's an extended period in the text. There's an extended break between the ninth and the tenth plague. Exodus 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out completely. But before he does this thing that he's about to do, God gives Moses some instructions. And I'll come back in a moment to talk a little bit more about some instructions. But notice what he tells them first in 11 verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So the text only tells us that God gave the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians, but I'm thinking after nine plagues, seeing God's power, 
they have begun to recognize there's something going on here. There's something to this God, Yahweh, that Pharaoh doesn't know. But we're certainly learning that he has power. I think they recognize that the Israelites, in all of these judgments, the Israelites have been exempt from them. These acts of judgment upon them, the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. God had told Moses that he would make him as a god to Pharaoh. And it says that Moses was greatly esteemed by the people and the servants in Egypt. So, what I'm wondering is if these common people, seeing all these things that are happening, and Moses being the one who's going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, they're saying, that guy, <laughs> that guy has some power. He, they may not recognize that God's the one behind it, but they can certainly recognize that Moses, there's something special there. So I wonder if they're bringing some kind of tribute to them to bring peace upon their land. And so we have that interlude that looks a little bit at the, the common people of Egypt. But there's also a bit of instruction for the people of Israel as they prepare for this coming 10th plague. See, God instructs Israel through Moses to prepare by taking an unblemished one-year-old lamb, kill it, put its blood on the doorpost, and the lintel of their houses, and then to eat the meat roasted. You're not allowed to boil it. You must roast it, and anything you don't eat, burn it up. Eat that with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, for this is the Lord's Passover. And at this time, they don't really know what that means. But he says, this will be a memorial. And a, a memorial for an event that has not yet taken place. The memorial is established before the actual event that they're memorializing. So God's making a point. What is about to happen is significant. Something important is about to go down. Well, Pharaoh has a high pain tolerance, apparently. He took a lot of punishment. From God, but the tenth plague was particularly devastating and demoralizing. So this, this final plague was the straw that broke the camel's back. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29, just prior to the passage we were just looking at. Now it came about at midnight, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. But when the Lord passed and saw the blood on the lintel and the doorpost of the house, he passed over the door. 
and did not allow the destroyer to come in and kill the firstborns of Israel. You can see that back in verse 23. Therefore, Pharaoh says in verse 31, he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. That's an interesting phrase, bless me also. Why would they bless him after all of that? But he recognizes God has power. Yahweh, this God that I did not know, is a powerful God. You know, we often speak of things being a a double-edged sword, meaning it's got good sides and it's got bad sides. The plagues were a bit of a double-edged sword, For in them, God's mercy and his judgment both are displayed. Both, however, in this case, are good. God's mercy is good. We can all agree on that. God's judgment is good. The Egyptians may disagree with us on that. But both demonstrate God's power. They demonstrate God's majesty. They demonstrate God's glory And each plague demonstrated both judgment and mercy. The Egyptians were being judged for failing to acknowledge God, acknowledge Yahweh, and then failing to obey his command to let his people go. Yet, each plague also demonstrated his mercy to Israel, for they were set apart from the Egyptians. And through this set of plagues, their liberty was secured. So in the middle of the night, according to the text, in the middle of the night, the Egyptians, who are under God's judgment, urged the Israelites, leave immediately with everything that you've got. Get out. Well, let's let's continue on in verse 37. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So God's promised redemption happens. Let's Take a moment, reflect back. Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. 
Does this sound familiar? It's what we just read. After 400 long years, more than 400 long years, dwelling in Egypt, God miraculously and quite suddenly brought the Israelites, his chosen people, out of the oppression in the land, just as he had promised to Abram all those years before. But notice something here. It wasn't just the biological descendants of Israel that left from Egypt. Verse 38 says a mixed multitude went with them. This mixed multitude probably refers to some God-fearing Egyptians. Maybe some of the Semitic population from the Hyksos era. Um, Perhaps even some slaves that were native to other lands that had been brought to Egypt. So God had promised Abraham, Abram at the time, I will make you a nation, I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky. Already the people, the biological people of Abraham have grown. Yet God adds even more to them through this mixed multitude. And we see in that God fulfilling another promise in part from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 that we looked at, that he would be a blessing to all people on earth. And this receives a fulfillment in this great swarm of foreigners who are joining with Israel. They've been impressed by God's power. They've seen his redemption of his people. And so they join Israel and leaving Egypt after all these plagues have occurred. God's display of power in Egypt was such that the Egyptians can, if they so choose, they could receive the benefit as well by joining with the Israelites and going and following God. See, God keeps his promises. He promised Israel that he would redeem them from the foreign power that was over them. He kept his promise to the nations through his mercy to his chosen people Israel. And he keeps his promises to bless others through us. See, as Christians, we're called to live in such a way that people can see God at work in us. And they should become enticed to the Lord through what he's doing in and through us, through our actions and character. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, Be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ. By living a spirit-filled life that reflects and demonstrates God's power in our own lives, then we can join with God in a sense in his mission, in his redemptive plan, drawing others to be partakers of the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing that God wants us To join him in his plan. Let's continue reading in verse 42. And let's just go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. It is a night to be observed. For the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. 
No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So, once again, we, we have this memorial that's established. I mentioned earlier that God had given specific instructions to Israel through Moses. Before the act of Passover had taken place, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread saw what it was celebrating. So although it would be initiated in this specific time of what's happening in the Exodus, it would be a memorial to be observed by Israel every year. And these verses reinforce that, this memorial observance. So although it was a unique, redemptive historical event, God didn't want them to forget what he had done and what it meant for them. Passover marked both the commencement of the Exodus and the beginning of Israel's liberation. And he said, you are to number your years based on this event. So it's a whole new life for them. Now, some balk at the events of this part of Exodus because it makes God seem like he's this great violent person being. But, you know, sometimes violence depicts our love in ways that other peacetime examples just really don't do. And if you've ever read Suzanne Collins' novel, The Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen volunteers to fight in this televised gladiator-style life fight to the death in the, arena, in the arena when her sister's name is drawn for the lottery. So her sister is to be the one to fight, and she volunteers in her stead. And Katniss's story of self-sacrifice being broadcast on this television program throughout the whole fictional nation of Pan Am inspires a revolution. It's this powerful story about really the love of a sister. The Passover is a violent event. God is often depicted in Scripture as being a warrior God. And he demonstrates this here. He's acted as a warrior, bringing judgment upon Israel's enemies. But what it is, most visually for the people of Israel, it's a powerful story about God's love for them. And so in observing the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread every year, 
the Israelites would be reminded of God's great love for them. And as such, God limited this observance. It's only for the nation of Israel. No foreigner was allowed to partake of it unless they were circumcised. If they were a servant that was brought in, they could become part of the household of God by being circumcised, having the sign of the covenant that they would trust the Lord, they would covenant with the Lord to become part of Israel. If a sojourner was coming along and they wanted to partake, they could hear the story of the Exodus and they could take the sign of the covenant and thereby become part of Israel. So the practice itself, the observance itself was limited to only those who were in the covenant, but it was open to anybody if they were willing to be part of the covenant. And this, this Exodus event, it symbolized the assurance of God's future deliverance in the scriptures. We see this over and over. The prophets would look back to the Exodus. How could these prophets be so sure that the Exodus, one Exodus, would imply another? Well, the fact remains that Yahweh is the one who delivers it. And as long as Yahweh's nature remains intact, the Exodus principle would remain intact. And Scripture tells us that God does not change. So this Exodus was a precursor to an even greater deliverance that God would bring. That at this point was yet to come. But Chris opened our service this evening with Jesus' words to his faithful apostles the night before his crucifixion, where he instituted a similar ordinance for those who would follow him during the celebration of a Passover meal. And on that special Passover night, with the details of this 10th plague being in the disciples' mind, Jesus connected himself to this event in Israel's history. He says this bread, this unleavened bread that we're eating tonight, this represents my body. It doesn't have any leaven. It's pure. There's nothing from the old in it. That's what leaven is. It's old, old mixture. There's nothing in it. I'm bringing something New. And just as the sacrificial lamb was to be unblemished, Jesus himself was without blemish, without sin. And the lamb's bones were not to be broken. And John tells us in chapter 19 that when the soldiers came to Jesus to break his legs to hasten his death, they found that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Instead, they pierced his side with a spear. And John testifies in that same chapter, these things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. The wine, representing the blood of Jesus, hearkened back to the blood of the Lamb that atoned for the sins of the people. John the Baptist said in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as God passed over the sins 
of the people. On the basis of the blood of the lamb that was painted on the wooden beams of their doors. God also passes over our sins on the basis of the blood of the lamb spilled on the wooden beams of the cross. You know, I, I love superhero movies. There's just something about a superhero movie that draws you in, that draws me in. One of my favorites is Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. If you're familiar with the film, Batman believes Harvey Dent is the person that Gotham needs to end injustice and crime. So, after Harvey Dent has become Two-Face and murdered some people, Batman falsely confesses to his crimes. He takes on this guilt that belongs to Two-Face, Harvey Dent. And then when I watch that, I think of Jesus. Because Jesus was without sin. He didn't do anything wrong. Yet he willingly took on our debt, our sin, so that we could go free. Israel relied on the blood of a lamb for their salvation. And we must rely on the blood of Jesus Christ and his body given for us on the cross to purchase our redemption. And as we enter into a time of response, we ask Noah and the band to make their way up. If you're here and you haven't made a decision to place your faith and trust in the cross of Jesus, I'm going to challenge you to do that tonight. Scripture tells us today is the day of salvation. Let today be your day of salvation. But if you're here tonight, as many of you are, and you have already made that decision, you've already trusted in Him, you've already believed in the sacrifice of Jesus, spend some time as we sing these words, reflecting on what He has done for you and praising the name that is above every other name, the one who died in your place. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.